Yo, it's the Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. There's a blast. Deep into the night. And a two-run homer for Baez. And there it goes. Abreu massacres this ball to left center field. Donna goes in motion left. Snap it to Michelle. He's running to the left. Angling. 25-20. Got a block for Brock. 50 pass, 5 Touchdown. 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 Don't win it. We're headed to Atlanta. Trubisky's going to run it. And he is going to get a first down. How about Trubisky to the 42-yard line? Oh, my goodness. In the ring. Steamboat's got him up. A slam. The Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and live? From Chicago, this is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app with open phone lines for you. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is the telephone number. Hit me up on Instagram, IGJHood. You follow me on Instagram, I follow you back guaranteed. Also on Snapchat, SnapJHood, as we broadcast live from our first Midwest Bank studios. Strong, trusted, first Midwest Bank. On the program tonight, we will hear from Jesse Rogers, who covers the Cubs for ESPN.com. He's live at Wrigley Field. will give us the latest on the Cubs and the White Sox. Also, he'll give us some in-game reports at the bottoms of the hour right here on ESPN 1000. Also, we'll hear from Flying Illini star, NBA veteran, now UIC Flames uh, assistant basketball coach, D. Brown will be on the program. Chicago's own D. Brown with us at 810. Also, we will give you something Bears, something NFL. We always bear down every night at 830. Tonight, we will take a look at the NFC North. We know what the Bears need, a kicker. Okay, so what else do we have to look out for as far as the NFC North? We have a preview from Michael Rothstein, who covers the Lions for ESPN.com. Leroy Butler, Super Bowl champion with the Green Bay Packers. Talk show host at WSSP in Milwaukee. Also, Chicago's own Pete Bursich, Vikings color analyst. We'll hear from him. So we've got you covered when it comes to the NFC North at 8.30 with our Bear Down segment right here on Under the Hood. Also, uh, well, of course, um, the man who lost a bet, uh, it was uh, interesting to have him just blurt out that if the Toronto Raptors win the NBA championship, Ryan Hollins told me that he'd come on t- 10 times for free. Uh, he will now be on for the third time in a row here on the program. Uh, appearance number three of 10 with Ryan Hollins. We'll talk to him about NBA free agency. Actually, the booking is good uh, because we got a lot to talk about as far as the NBA free agency. The draft is tomorrow. So we'll hear from Ryan Hollins, the hot ticker, coming up at 9-10. And uh, plenty of thoughts for you as well. 312-332-ESPN. Hope that you enjoyed your Wednesday. Hope that you enjoy your Wednesday night. We're with you until 10 o'clock. That's Dan Levitard and Stu Gatz right here on ESPN 1000. Okay, let's get out to the ballpark here. 
The White Sox got the job done against the Cubs. Oh, as a White Sox fan, I feel that I can be a meatball at least four times a year when the Cubs take on the White Sox. So as a White Sox fan, I am definitely rooting for my White Sox. You saw what happened yesterday. We were on the air. Aloy Imenez got the job done. Aloy sending Pedro Stope, <laughs> sending his ass over to the left center field wall at Wrigley Field. And the White Sox win 3-1. We'll see if the Cubs have a split coming tonight as it's going to be a marquee matchup with John Lester uh, on the mound for the Cubs uh, against Lucas Giolito, who's vying, I think, for the Cy Young if he continues to pitch like this. Let's go on out to Jesse Rogers at Wrigley Field. He joins us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jesse, as always, I appreciate your time. What are your thoughts from last night's game? Big time moment for Eloy, right? Oh yeah, and uh, you know if you're a Cub fan, if you want, if you're one of those pessimistic types, you go through life a little pessimistic, then you you are probably wondering right now, was there any sort of a passing of the torch here last night? Are, are we seeing two ships pass each other in the night? If you know what I mean, I mean that was really a coming out moment for Eloy. The White Sox win the night. They're 500 behind Lucas Giolito, who's having an, a Cy Young type year. I'm not saying the Cubs are going to go south. And the Sox are going north, but we know the Sox have um, a good core um, that's emerging out of its rebuild. And hopefully both teams will be good for quite a while. But if you're a pessimistic Cub fan, you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? I'm watching an offense that looked a lot like the end of last year. So a lot of good on the White Sox side and some nervous fans, I think, on the Cubs side of things. Jesse, what's your letter grade for John Lester this year? Um. I give him a B. I don't have all his uh, internal staffs right in front of me, but uh, uh, you know the ERA is maybe a tad higher than I thought it would be. I, th- I think he'll end up in the threes, but probably in the high threes. So this is the way I look at it. If you're just talking on paper as a pitcher, look at the stats. Don't know the person. Maybe it's a C. But when you consider he's 35 years old, and um, you know he had a one one six in April, he's he's gone backwards since then. I mean, I think he's he's been a B B minus guy. Uh, now, that ERA keeps going up, different story. But I think when you consider what you're expecting out of him, um, I, I would give him a, a, a B or B- minus at this point. Um, now, lately, not as good, but certainly a great first month, and that helped the Cubs uh, you know, recover from their bad start. Your point on Twitter was well taken uh, when you talked about the last five games being last in OBP. And Len Casper also chimed in and said, yeah. getting on is always the biggest thing. <laughs> R-I-S-P, irrelevant with nobody on base. Out of here, J.D. So uh, <laughs> I, I, so he's pretty much a preacher to the choir there. Uh, that For sure, it's got to turn around offensively, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things going on, and one of them is, is, is the strangest of all. The fact that uh, the Cubs are, are not getting on right now is the reason they're not scoring. Okay, But that's a short-term thing. This is a good on-base team. They're still third in the league in on-base percentage, but they've dropped. They were right there with the Dodgers at number one. They've dropped, I don't know, like 10 points in the last week or two. Uh, they're not getting on as much, but I think that'll, that'll change. What hasn't changed and what's almost gotten worse is hitting with runners in scoring position. They are now dead last in the NL, and that's the part that's confusing. I mean, they're behind the Miami Marlins. They're behind the Giants in a category that is you know, somewhat important. I mean, you know, other than hitting a solo home run, or with a man on first, the other way to score is with men in scoring position, right? Here's my point. You don't have to be first. You don't even have to be fifth. You don't even have to be eighth. You can't be 15th 
and expect to win your division. You know, what I mean? you, if you're 15th with runners in scoring position, then you better be perfect and all. You better hit four solo homers or a couple with a man on first. Uh, um, overtime, that's an important step. It again doesn't mean you have to be in the top five, but being last behind some of these teams in a in a offensive category like that, it is mind boggling. It really is. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of theories of, about it, Jonathan. I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I will say their their uh, bat bip, you know, balls and batting average with balls in play is really low for with men in scoring position. So maybe it's a little flukish, but we also know it's been a weakness of theirs over the last few years. Jess, uh, anything? Did Madden say anything interesting uh, right before the game here? Uh, well, you know, he went on and on about this topic. Um, and, you know, I've told you this before. He is, he's a good hitting person to talk to. He really has seen it all as a hitting instructor. Um, and so when you get him going, he will really talk hitting. And I asked him one question, okay, and this has come up um, talking to people and stuff uh, on the radio and on, in so, on social media. There, I think there's a, a difference when you talk about hitting with a man on third and less than two outs and just trying to get that run home, right? Mm-hmm. that's different than hitting with men in scoring position, like two outs, second and third. You're not thinking about a fly ball. You're not thinking right. about a ground ball with the infield back. With two outs, you've got to get a base hit. So I feel like those are two different things, hitting with men in scoring position and trying just to get a runner home from third with less than two outs. Joe gave the same answer, though. He said, look, it's all the same to me. It's about using the middle of the field. Use the, think middle of the field, and if the pitcher throws you a cookie, hit it out. If he throws you a bad changeup and you're ahead of it, you'll pull it down the line. You won't pull it foul because you're thinking middle of the field. Um, same thing on a pitch that you're late on. You, you'll still hit it down the right field line. You won't hit it necessarily foul or whatever the case may be. So you have to think consciously think about up the middle when you're trying to drive in runs. He's preached this for years. So I thought that was real interesting. When you wa- watch hitters tonight with men on base, men on sc- in scoring position, Look at the approach of the hitters. You can tell when a guy's trying to go up the middle. Let's see how that plays out. The other thing was a little newsy. Uh, Craig Kimbrell will throw again on Friday, okay, in Iowa. And I think it's a little interesting. Who knows what it means? He only threw eight pitches yesterday. Now they're giving him two days off before he pitches again on Friday. So I'm not saying anything's up, but it tells me they're being very, very careful with him to give him, you know, two days off, Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, and then pitch on Friday. So the progression is going to be as slow as we thought. Two days off, then he'll pitch. Maybe one day off after that. One day off after that. Maybe a back-to-back. But they're obviously taking it real slow. That's what it tells me. The fact that he pitched eight, uh, you know, three eight pitches yesterday, and they're waiting until Friday to throw again. Well, the game is starting, but that's a longer conversation for us for another time about that hitting because a lot of that yeah. I disagree with with Madden. And maybe this is some of the things that Theo addressed at the end of the season as far as old school versus analytics, right? I mean, some of the uh, what Madden's talking about is is old school stuff that we you and I came up on, and, and there are numbers and metrics that would tell him otherwise as far as situational hitting. But that's another conversation for another time. Yeah, yeah, it would it, it would take a longer time, and we should do that at some point because it, I think I'm fascinated by. It. I think it's real interesting, and trying to find the balance is the key. You want to find the balance uh, with your swing, with your approach, depending on the situation, the hitter, the pitcher, all that stuff. So it, it is a def, it is definitely a longer conversation. All that is in try not to suck as well. The philosophies of Joe Madden in bookstores everywhere, including Amazon. 
Well said. That's like a commercial right there. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> I did it for you because you didn't have your script in front of you. Yeah, I, I didn't have the script. You're exactly right. <laughs> I appreciate it, my friend. You got it. Have a great night, Jay Hood. Jesse Rogers with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. We'll hear from Sean Farnham, by the way, coming up at the bottom of the hour. He is a college basketball analyst and expert. We'll hear from him coming up at the bottom of the hour right here on ESPN 1000. You know why? Because it's draft week. And you should see how much paper is in front of me. Uh, I have been working on this draft the last two or three days because we will air the draft, the NBA draft, live from the Advocate Center. I'll be teamed with Chris Black. And we'll be on special time 6 o'clock tomorrow. Don't look for me at 7. Look for us at 6 o'clock as we start our NBA draft coverage live from the Bulls facility uh, right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. The only place where you can get wall-to-wall coverage of every team in the NBA draft is right here on ESPN 1000. I don't know if that was in the promo, but I just thought I'd promote that myself. I'm I'm used to that. Let me uh, move on to something else here as we keep our eyes on the Cubs and the White Sox. Uh, Garcia, by the way, with a home run for the White Sox. Now it's 1-0 in the top of the first, and Lester is trying to get out of this inning just by surrendering just the one run. Let me move on to this here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Zion Williamson. I think it's obvious to everybody that Zion Williamson will be the number one pick in the draft when we uh, do our show tomorrow. And for those that don't know Zion, you're talking about a difference-making player in college, and we only saw him for a year. I will never tell a college player that you really need to stay in school for your sophomore year, your junior year, your senior year. I won't do that. Because there's too much money that will be made by that athlete if he leaves college and goes to the NBA. You know that. But there are some players in this draft where you wish, man, if this player had a little bit more seasoning, that player would be more NBA ready. But that's not the game today. It's not the game. The game is to be able to make a splash, make an impact when you are a draft pick. In Thursday's draft... The Pelicans are going to get Zion Williamson number one overall in the post-Anthony Davis era. And while he will have big shoes to fill, his game does have some similarities to Anthony Davis. This season, Williamson averaged nearly 16 points in the paint per game. That's second in Division One. That matches up perfectly with New Orleans, who led in NBA points in the paint last year. He will be able to look at other teams that were able to score in the painted area. And because of Anthony Davis and what he was able to do on the floor, he was the leader in points in the paint for the New Orleans Pelicans. Davis ranked second in the NBA in point, both uh, paint points per game and points per paint touch. It's one of these newfangled uh, <laughs> points per paint touch and also uh, paint points. One of these uh, stats that you see now when you go and do a deep dive into the NBA numbers. But as we saw toward the end of the season, Zion Williamson, he could stretch the floor, which Davis started to do very well this season. On open three-pointers, Williamson shot 39% compared to just 30% on contested attempts from beyond the arc. Plus, he shot 43% on all three-pointers in the ACC and the NCAA tournaments. This season with the Pelicans, Davis set a career high and three-point field goal attempts per game. He also shot 38% on catch-and-shoot three-pointers, by far his best average in a season uh, over the last five seasons. What do you think about this? 
Anthony Davis wants out, and he gets his wish. He goes to Los Angeles. And somehow, by the stroke of luck at the NBA lottery, the New Orleans Pelicans have his replacement just like that. (laughs) How crazy is that? I was looking through the numbers today and looking at Anthony Davis versus Zion Williamson, and I just cited those numbers for you. It's almost like Davis is out, Williamson is in, and they won't miss a beat from a number standpoint. Of course, there's always a learning curve when it comes to a young player uh, like Zion Williamson, but let me make a, a bigger point about Zion. As we talk about this with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app, the bigger point about Zion Williamson is this is that Zion Williamson, just for a few games, just for a few months, captured the storylines when, when it comes to college basketball. He was the face of college basketball, and one of the things I was kept thinking about during the college basketball season is, when's the last time we've had that? When's the last time that we've had someone in college basketball to be able to capture the imagination of the sport? The reason why that there aren't faces of college basketball too often outside of the NCAA tournament is because they're out so quickly. They're a freshman, they get hot, they leave. They're a freshman, they play a few games, and they leave. It's not like the good old days of college players staying around for their sophomore, junior, and senior year so you get a chance to be able to enjoy and love them like you love NBA players. When you're a good player, you're immediately sent off to the NBA. And that's fine because that's the way things are right now. But Zion Williamson brought something to the table that we have not seen in college basketball in a long time. The smile, the production. Who else is 6'7", 6'8", 280 pounds and getting up and down the floor like a, a point guard? Who's doing that? Who can defend all five positions? He's a machine. Anytime that you don't have a comp, for someone that is in a sport, doesn't matter what sport it is. If you can't come up with a comp in five seconds on who Zion Williamson is, then that makes him unique. The same thing with LeBron James. I was around when LeBron James was drafted. It was hard to determine a comp for LeBron James because we hadn't seen anyone with that size and that motor and that ability. So just a shout out to Zion Williamson because his life's going to change tomorrow. Even though he knows he's a New Orleans Pelicans player and he knows that there's been media whispering in his ear since he was in high school about how special he is and the kind of player that he already is before he signs his NBA contract. I just hope that he can be able to provide that shining light, that bright light in the NBA as he did in college basketball. College basketball hasn't had that long time of someone that's a must-see and people concerned about him when he goes down with that injury where he busts out of his shoe. I mean, that that was not just a, a college basketball story. It became a story all across the sports landscape going into the news about Zion Williamson busting out of his shoe. It's, it's interesting. But personality, production, I think those two things really resonated with a lot of people and really got people on Zion Williamson's side. Now, of course, he gets to the NBA, and people expect the NBA championship or expect him to be this all-time great, and that's unfortunate because that's part of the hot-take society that we live in. But for me, I just enjoyed him every time I saw him on the floor for Duke, and I also enjoy 
will enjoy watching him with the New Orleans Pelicans. All the talents in the West, so I'll be watching a lot of New Orleans Pelicans basketball to see how he's able to work with a number of other young veterans, young grizzled veterans, um, on that squad with the Pelicans via the trade with the Los Angeles Lakers. So it should be interesting. I look forward to seeing that. Uh, something else, too. Uh, I was I was seeing this uh, earlier today. I don't know if you saw this, but the video is out about a police looking for a man in a brawl at a youth game. So police in Lakewood, Colorado, have asked the public to help in identifying a man who was identified and involved in a brawl uh, on the field at a youth baseball game. Police spokesman John Romero told media that a game between seven-year-olds from Lakewood and Bear Creek got out of control and parents and coaches got into a dispute over a 13-year-old empire. A 13-year-old empire. It was a call that he made, and there was fisticuffs. Adults quickly amassed on the field side of the backstop, and punches were thrown. Police said that several people had already... Uh, they received citations for disorderly conduct and fighting in public. But they are still trying to identify one man in particular. Romero said that the man they are looking for is likely going to face assault charges. So this guy is on the run. I saw the video several times, and you can find it yourself at Lakewood PDCO. So that's Lakewood uh, Police Department Company, I believe. So PDCO, Lakewood PDCO on Twitter. You can see it for yourself. Is that really happening? Assaulting each other at a youth baseball game? Thugs everywhere. Thugs. You're, you're trying to beat up on a, a kid umpire who's learning just like those kids are learning. And yet, some people think that's fine. This happens in your backyard. You might not even know it. You might be that person. Don't be that person. It, it, I find it interesting how so many parents, so many adults, so many guardians try to live vicariously through kids because you couldn't hump it because you couldn't get it done as an athlete. Now you want to yell at young umpires or, or yelling at young kids because you couldn't get it done. That is just insane to me. I just don't know how you could be a youth coach or you're someone that's a parent and you feel the need to be able to to voice your opinion and try to fight with people based on calls in a youth baseball game as if it's the World Series. Even if it's a World Series, it doesn't make sense. Seven-year-olds in Liquid and Bear Creek fighting over a disputed call by a 13-year-old umpire. For real? Just let that sit for a second. I want you to think about that video, too, at Liquid PDCO. I want you to see that because I want you to see yourself if you're that person. Are you that helicopter mom, helicopter dad that wants to be able to fight people based on a call from a 13-year-old umpire, a disputed call? Oh, this is not right. This is a BS call. I'm going to fight that kid. For what? So what does that show the kids too? And then you wonder why your kid's not in, in control at home. You wonder why your kid's a little bit strange, because you as an adult can't be adult enough to be able to handle a youth baseball game. Those people don't need to be around, and if they're identified and they are allowed to come back, why are they allowed to come back? That's another thing, too. These coaches 
and and some of these people are around these games. Why are they allowed to be anywhere around these ballparks around these kids? Why is that happening? That should never happen. I I just uh, I shake my head at these thugs trying to fight one another, and it got heated for sure over seven year olds. I mean, it's bad in high school. It's bad in college. But a bunch of kids trying to learn. What are you, what are they learning? That you're a jerk. That's what they're learning. They're learning that you're not very smart. They're also learning that that you couldn't hump it, or you wish you were on that field, or you have something that's missing in your life that you feel that you need to fight somebody. <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable. We talk more about the NBA draft. What could the Bulls do at seven? Sean Farnham from ESPN is next as you're listening to Under the Hood. Jonathan Hood. If you know, you know. When we all clicking like Golden State, and you and your team are the motorcade. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. On ESPN 1000, Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. the hood with jonathan hood on espn 1000 and the espn app it's the cubs and the white Sox. here's jesse rogers with the fireworks jess yeah exactly right jay hood what a change in the game right now is wilson Contreras on a one-two pitch it's a grand slam here in the bottom of the first inning plates four the cubs were down one nothing as louis garcia hit the first pitch of the game from john lester out to left field so the Sox were up one nothing but then giolito a little trouble here in the bottom of the first. Eventually loads the bases after Avi Baez earns his first walk in the month of June. And then Contreras, with a 1-2 pitch, sends it out to left field. So it should be a good uh, pitching night because it's cold. It's like an April night here. But so far, both teams are hitting. 4-1 Cubs, bottom of the first. Back to you. All right, Jesse. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Thank you, Jesse. Glad that you are with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. By the way, a little bit more color to that uh, home run by Wilson Contreras. A bat flip, which was epic. And also a yelling into the White Sox dugout. Boy, that rivalry is real. (laughs) Cubs and White Sox. That's fun, man. That's fun stuff. So 4-1, Cubs with the lead. And we'll hear from Jesse again coming up at the bottom of the hour at 8.30, right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. All right, still to come, we're going to hear from D. Brown, uh, line-eye great UIC Flames color analyst as we get you ready for the NBA draft. And I got a chance to talk to Sean Farnham. Sean Farnham uh, is a longtime color analyst for ESPN, uh, breaking down college basketball. I got his thoughts uh, as someone who I really trust when it comes to these things about tomorrow's NBA draft. Top to bottom, what stands out most about the quality uh, and the NBA potential in this draft? What stands out most? Limited. Limited. I mean, I really think that this is going to be a draft that we're going to look back on in five to seven years, and, and you know, most of the first-rounders aren't even going to be in the league. Um, just this, this, this draft is really a three-person draft, and then after that you're hoping to find uh, the diamond in the rough, the player that's going to be able to develop 
maybe the guy that got overlooked a little bit. We talked about the world, the guys of like Darius Garland and, and what might have been had he been healthy all year long for Vanderbilt. I, I, Bryce Drew would probably still be the coach of Andy. I'd start with that. Uh, and he may, he may be that fourth guy. But, I mean, after watching a year of Cam Reddish, am I excited about Cam Reddish at the next level of showing me any kind of consistency? Not, not right now. Uh, so it, it's a lot of, of guessing that's going to take place. Uh, in these individual workouts and the time that these general managers are spending with these players are going to be very important as far as determining what the right fit is. There'll be some other guys that show up. There'll be some guys that that will be first-round picks, late second-round picks, uh, or early second-round picks, excuse me, uh, that will end up being good basketball players in the NBA. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to talk about a lot of misses inside the lottery as far as what teams are doing and who they're drafting. Many look at the Bulls at seven, Sean, and feel that if Jared Culver's there, he might fall to seven to the Bulls. What did you, I mean? I have obviously a big spotlight for Jared Culver uh, in the Final Four. What do you think of the six-six shooting guard from Texas Tech? I love him. Uh, I think I think he is one of the lowest risk draft picks that you can find inside the lottery because you know what you're going to get with him. His ceiling isn't as high as some others uh, because. You kind of look at him and go, all right, well, how much better is he going to get? I think there are there's some room for offensive growth, um, but defensively he's about as good as he's going to be, and, that, and he's a really good defensive player. I, I think he's the type of guy that you draft and you know that he's going to come off your bench uh, and maybe eventually move into a starter's role going forward uh, that is going to be a very good player. I think a lot of times when teams draft in the lottery, the hope is that you're getting a franchise player that's going to change your organization. Jared Culver is not a organizational-changing player. He is a very good 10-year vet. And I think what fans sometimes get lost in is the fact that being a 10-year vet, the league is full of 10-year vets that are role players, you know, uh, and, and that really have a significant role on a team that is successful, but isn't a star, isn't a standout, isn't a game-changer for an organization. But with the right people surrounding them, they can become a very, very good player, and I think that's what Jared Colfer is. I think he, if, if you're going to close your eyes and you're a Bulls fan, I think like a Malcolm Brogdon type, right? I mean, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty good guy to be. Uh, you know, you're probably maybe never going to be an all-star, uh, but but a very good basketball player on a very good team, hopefully one day for the Bulls. Um, with John Morant in Memphis, how much could he make a difference for the Grizzlies? What do you think about him uh, being with the Grizzlies? Because it's pretty obvious that he should be the number two pick, right? He will be. Uh, he's got great. He's got great potential. He's got to do a lot better job of limiting his turnovers. I mean that that's been a huge issue for him in the competition in which he played at. Uh, is nowhere even close to what he's going to see at the next level. Now, at the same time, you could say the teammates around him are going to be a lot better at the NBA level than they were at, at Murray State. But he has an innate ability to see the floor. And I did this this breakdown of who he kind of reminds me of and what kind of player he could be. And it's easy to draw the Russell Westbrook comparison because of the elite-level athleticism and being able to finish in the paint. But I think he's got a little deer and fox to him as well. A lefty that's crafty, uh, loves to attack and get inside the paint, forces that back line to have to step, and then when they step, he's dumping down or throwing it up to the rim for lobs. I think he's going to be a very good NBA player. And I think, you know, we talked about being a three-person draft. He's one of the three uh, that I think that, you know, from Memphis' perspective, you're getting your point guard moving forward. Uh, You put him with Jaron Jackson. 
I think that's a good young nucleus of two players that you can really start to build around if you're Memphis, because really right now in the Western Conference, too, it's not like Memphis is, is going to be making a huge push right away. It's going to be a slow process. Those two are very nice pieces to start building towards and watching them mature and trying to keep them in Memphis and then build around them to allow them to make a push to try to get into the playoffs. Sean Farnham from ESPN with me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and ESPN apps. We talk about college basketball, the NBA draft. Well, for the Bulls, it could be Cameron Reddish, who you always talked about. You talked about Culver. What about Kobe White, the 6'5 uh, shooting guard from North Carolina? What, what do you think his upside is? Um, I think there's a lack of consistency that would concern me. Uh, he is a great scoring guard, and Roy Williams labeled him the best scoring guard that he's ever coached. Uh, that's saying a lot. He had a bunch of 30-point games. I think it ended up being like four 30-point games this season for North Carolina. But there were other games where he was a no-show. Uh, and I think in the professional ranks, you, you've got to know what you're getting. Uh, and you've got to be dependable and accountable. Uh, there are plenty of guys that can go out and get you 30 on a given night. Uh, and then you look at the end of the season and go, man, he averaged 15 a game. Yeah, he went for 31, 9, and 0 the next. You know, uh, that's, that's not what you want. Uh, because you, as a coach in the NBA – you're going to end up, your job is on the line. You've got to put off the people that are most dependable. And that would be my one concern for Kobe White. He, he has all the tools necessary offensively to do it. He's got to get better at the defensive end of the floor. Um, and he's got to just become more consistent on the offensive end of the floor. He's got to know when to pick and choose the opportunities at the, at the professional ranks when you, you're surrounded by a ton of talent. How, how will that work out? Because he does want the ball in his hands. He was a point guard at North Carolina, he's going to want his, the ball in his hands as much as he possibly can in the NBA as well. And as, he, as the league gets more to this positionalist style of basketball where whichever guard gets the ball in his hands, just bring it up the floor. And heck, you know, we even saw Marcus Saul bring the ball up the floor last night for the Raptors. Everybody's bringing the ball up the floor. It becomes a little bit less of who's dominating the ball, but you also have to know their personal strengths as far as when the ball's not in their hand, do you notice them out on the floor? Do they make an impact still? Are they cutting? Are they moving? Are they, are they doing the things that, you know, we talk about Steph shooting so much. Part of the things that Steph does so well for the Golden State Warriors is he moves well without the ball. So when the ball isn't in his hands, you can't relax defensively because if you do, he's going to be wide open and get the ball right back. If you're chasing him, now what are you doing? You're not paying attention to where the ball is. Now it allows better floor spacing for other guys to score or to operate and be successful with the strength of their game. And I think that if you're a young guard coming in this league right now, there's two things you have to do. One is you have to be able to shoot the ball. If you can't shoot the ball, you can't play in the NBA right now at the guard position. Two, you've got to be able to have great endurance and be able to chase at the defensive end of the floor. You've got to be able to move on the offensive end of the floor and, and be in that consistent motion aspect. Because it, the isolation ball is kind of slowly drifting away in the NBA. Uh, and when you go to the ISO game, it's be- becoming a lot easier to defend. We saw it with teams like the Houston Rockets. When you get into the postseason and you're in the playoffs, it's a very difficult seven-game series for you if you're going to just ISO James Harden and try to set on ball screen. Teams defend it differently in the postseason than they do in the regular season. You can find success there, but it's harder to find success in the latter stages of the postseason when you're playing against good, elite defensive teams that can switch and can show. And so I think that's one of the things, if you're looking at Kobe White, those are some of the question marks I have is can he do that on a consistent level when you're talking 82 games plus the preseason plus maybe a postseason uh, once it gets to that point. 
I tried to show him. You're listening to my mans in them, Jay Hood. Yep. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. I tried to show him. And the ESPN app. Yeah. Gone on you with the pick and roll. Younger Flame here in sickle mode. You're listening to my mans in them, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Apple here from Illini Star, NBA veteran and UIC Flames assistant coach D. Brown coming up at 810. We also will bear down as we take a look at the NFC North. We know what the Bears are, but what, is the, what about the rest of the division? We'll kind of preview the NFC North coming up at 835 for bear down. All part of the mix here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Well, you know, because it's weeknights, you know, some people are just busy going to dinner, I uh, spend time with the family. They don't have time for a full interview with me, but sometimes they have time for at least one question. You guys lose this game or did the Jazz win this one? Time for one question. What? With Jonathan Hood. Bro, what are you talking about, man? I am number one. Number one. Just one question. Oh, there's one more thing. On ESPN 1000. Indeed, it's time for one question. We always go through our phones, looking through our address book, looking for phone numbers, looking for friends of the program, looking for friends of the station, looking for guests that we've had in the program. And we landed in the seas and we found Chauncey from Chauncey's Great Outdoors every Saturday morning from 6 to 7 a.m. right here on ESPN 1000. And Chauncey joins me, Jonathan Hood under the hood. Hello, Chauncey. Mr. Hood, when are we going fishing, dude? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you know what? When's it, when's it spring? That's a question. When's spring? How many crappie can I eat right at the bank there in the springtime, right? Uh, you know, I have been known to do many. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all it is, crappie fishing right now. I want to go deep. Can't go deep right now. As soon as the spring breaks, let's go to Wolf Lake and see if we can find something. Now, just remember, I believe in catch and release. Release in the grease. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> I'm with you on that, brother. Okay. Chauncey, are you ready for one question, sir? You know, the last time somebody asked, I asked a question. I got slapped in a bar, but we want to go there. But that's another subject. <laughs> <laughs> that's like you, yes. That doesn't surprise me. All right, my friend. Here's your one question. Chauncey from Chauncey's Great Outdoors every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. right here on ESPN 1000. Sir. What is the mm-hmm. difference between people who fish and hunt and people who don't? Oh, I think the difference between the two is the people that fish and hunt have a more unique appreciation of nature. And that's not taking away from anything that the the hikers or the bikers or anything else. But we, we have an appreciation for as we're making joke of releasing in the grease with our fish fillets, uh, we, we wind up having a, an appreciation for uh, renewing our resource, but we also have an appreciation for the flavor of nature. And this is what we've lived on for millennia in this world, uh, from early man running across the, the, you know, literally the, you know, the Serengeti and, and, and working his way up through the world and through Europe and Asia and then across the the uh, land bridge in, in the, the North America, the Native American Indians became. I mean, it's just such a unique thing. It's appreciation of nature. And the more that we're out 
fishing and being part of nature, whether it's hunting and stuff like that. And the funny thing about hunting is, you know, I look at hunting as well. It, I like to hunt. I enjoy hunting. But when I harvest my animal, then I can't hunt anymore. So I don't want to harvest them. I want to be out in the woods longer. <laughs> <laughs> so I just enjoy that. But it's, I think it's really an appreciation of nature because what we wind up doing is we wind up being part of nature more. We wind up learning more of nature. I like to use the term, when we are out there, we've learned, we are teaching ourselves to talk to nature, where we have gone away from understanding nature, now that the more time you spend in the woods fishing or attempting to hunt, as people tell you, for me, uh, I do a lot of sleeping in the woods, so that's what I mean. <laughs> and this way, you're getting... You're learning to understand when Mother Nature is talking to you. And that, my friends, is one question. From your hood to J-Hood. I excel, then prevail. The mic is contacted, I attract clientele. On ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.